Hi, I'm Nicholas Lemon, and welcome to Underreported, a podcast from Columbia Global Reports. I'm here today with Helen C. Epstein, a visiting professor of global public health and human rights at Bard College in Annandale, New York. In 2007, her book, The Invisible Cure, Why We're Losing the Fight Against AIDS in Africa, was a New York Times notable book and Amazon.com's best science book of 2007. Her articles have appeared in the New York Review of Books, the New York Times Magazine, and other publications, and she's worked as a consultant for many organizations, including the World Bank, UNICEF, and Human Rights Watch. In her latest book, Another Fine Mess, America, Uganda, and the War on Terror, out this month, Helen Epstein provides a vivid new account of Ugandan dictator Yaweri Museveni's 30-year reign chronicling how Western leaders' single-minded focus on the war on terror and their naive dealings with strongmen are at the root of much of the turmoil in Eastern and Central Africa. Short-circuiting the power of the people of this region might otherwise have over their own destiny. Is the West to blame for the agony of Uganda and its neighbors? Um, Helen, welcome. Thank you so much. Let's start, uh, before we get to the specific topic of the book, um, how did you start becoming a regular visitor to Africa? Um, That happened a long time ago. Um, I'd always been interested in Africa since childhood, for whatever reason. Um, But I didn't really go there until I was in my early 30s, and I'd been working as a biochemist for many years by then. And I um, went to work in an AIDS lab, actually, in, uh, um, at Makere University in Uganda. It was very early days. So I, um, I first went to Uganda in 1991 as a uh, biochemist. It was a sort of postdoctoral situation. And I uh, worked in an AIDS lab there, helped set one up, one of the first AIDS labs in the in the country, actually. And um, we were trying to develop a vaccine with results that we now know it turned out to be extremely difficult. And I had some sense that it was going to be a very, very uh, difficult thing to do. Um, so I, while I became kind of disenchanted with AIDS research, I became... Um, fascinated with the country and the people and their story and have been ever since. How much time have you spent there over the years? It's hard to say because I've kind of gone back and forth as a consultant and as a writer uh, for almost 25 years. Mm -hmm. And I lived there for a couple of years. I taught at the university, McCarrere, for a couple of years and then then came back on various... um, consultancies. Now, from the moment you started going there, uh, Museveni was already president, right? That's right. And um, as far as I knew, everything was going well, but there was a great deal that I didn't know at that time. It seemed uh, it seemed uh, to many of us outsiders like a very hopeful place. What was so hopeful about it? Well, we were told by the World Bank, for example, that the economy was recovering, the price of coffee was going up, which is what many peasants lived on. 
uh, it seemed very peaceful. It was hard to imagine that this was the country where um, that had been sort of ravaged with violence by Idi Amin and and uh, and other um, Uganda's other dictators. And uh, it was just um, and and some of the kindest people I've ever met, and some of the most interesting people I've ever met. So I um, really loved it. Um, tell us a little bit about Museveni and where he came from, how he got elected president in the first place. Who is he? He didn't get elected president, actually. <laughs> he, he claimed to get elected. <laughs> he came to power uh, by um, uh, through an insurgency, actually, an armed insurgency. Um, he, um, um, Museveni uh, comes from western Uganda, which is a region that's very uh, near Rwanda. And he comes from an ethnic group that's closely related to the Tutsis of Rwanda. And those are um, cattle people. Always, he had a kind of fascination from an early age, as far as as his uh, his teachers and contemporaries' stories go, uh, a fascination with military things. He read military books. He used to dress up um, as a feel like a little field marshal when he was a kid and march around. And his name is uh, Museveni. Even reflects that. Um, the name Yoweri is a kind of Africanization of the, of the name Joel. But Museveni refers to the group of um, Ugandan soldiers who went out and fought in the 7th Regiment in the King's African Rifles during World War II. And his, I think his grandfather had been in this regiment, and so he was named, uh, he was given that name, Museveni. Um, and then he went to, um, uh, he joined kind of radical student politics at Dar es Salaam University where he studied politics. He was, uh, he wrote his thesis about um, um, Franz Fanon and how he saw the expression of his ideas in the war in Mozambique where the rebels uh, were beating up on Portuguese soldiers. So he witnessed that. And then he came back, and um, um, as soon as he got, almost as soon as he got back, he joined the government's uh, security service. Actually, he was in intelligence. But then the government was overthrown by Idi Amin almost immediately, and so he pretty much joined um, a rebellion after that to try to overthrow Amin and spent um, the 70s in exile. Uh, then he and other groups and the Tanzanian army overthrew Idi Amin in 1980, or 1979 rather, and then um, uh, um, then another president came in through non-democratic means, an election was rigged, and Museveni then went back to the bush and started his rebellion, which was eventually successful in 1986, and he's ruled the country ever since. So... Um it seems unlikely from a U.S. perspective that somebody who grew up uh, admiring Frantz Fanon would immediately be embraced by our president, Ronald Reagan. How did that happen? This is very mysterious. But what we do know is that meetings between um, 
uh, Museveni and the and the White House began quite early. So by 1987, he uh, was already acquainted with the Reagans, and he visited Washington again in 1988 and again in 1989. And since then, um, he has had more high-level contact with Western um, leaders than any other living African president. And yet, very few people in the West have ever heard of him. Why is Washington, what does Washington see in this guy? Why do they invest so much time and attention on him as opposed to any other African leader? I suspect it has something to do with his um, his military aptitude. When he went into the bush, he was a very young man. He's still in his 30s. And he commanded a group of, um, of generally educated uh, um, young Ugandans who managed to topple a much stronger national army. And I think um, just through his kind of cunning and strategy, and I think this really impressed the Americans because um, I think this really impressed the Americans because I think it turned out that um, that the um, um, that that would prove very useful in the partnership between America and Uganda. So, in any partnership, you know, both sides are looking for something. In this partnership, what's each side looking for? What's what is each side? I mean to the extent that they're not sincerely in love with each other and it's more practical. What's each side getting out of the partnership? What's the real politic? Uh-huh. Yes, uh, good question. Well, from the West's point of view, I think um, after the war in Vietnam, there was a sense that sending young Americans abroad to secure our national interests, whatever they might be, uh, was more difficult, increasingly difficult. Um, And even on, especially to a a place like Africa, which can be quite dangerous. Uh, And so we have um, um, increasingly in Africa, especially after 1993 in the sort of Somalia debacle when uh, 19 young servicemen were were killed in local fighting. We've increasingly relied upon African partners to uh, secure our interests in Africa and even secure our interests in other places. We actually have Ugandan contractors uh, increasingly replacing our own soldiers, for example, in Iraq. And um, But particularly in Africa, we had a lot of strategic interests. For example, um, after we began supporting the Afghan uh, rebellion against the Soviets in the 1980s, a lot of small arms and uh, weapons and so on began to kind of um, pouring across the Sahelian region in North Africa and particularly into Sudan. And there were concerns there that radical uh, Islam, which was, an inc- which, which was increasingly replacing the Soviet Union as our great uh, um, source of rivalry for world power, uh, that these would be falling into their hands and that uh, um, increasing number of terrorist attacks against Western par- uh, targets were going to be carried out there. 
um, a radical is there was a rising Islamic uh, radical movement that eventually did come to power in 1989 in Sudan, and we were already afraid of it in the mid-'80s. And Uganda happens to be right next to Sudan. So we were hoping, um, and Museveni had a longstanding relationship with a rebel movement called the Sudan People's Liberation Army, or the SPLA, which was based in southern Sudan. And so it was thought uh, that Museveni um, might be able to help us help the SPLA, which eventually happened. So um, that... um, uh, and the SPLA would then help weaken Sudan, which is what we, which is what we wanted to achieve. Now, what did Museveni get out of the deal? He got an enormous amount of uh, foreign aid. We don't really know how much, but at least um, we do know at least uh, twenty million has changed hands. Probably more uh, has flowed into Uganda, and um, and uh, large numbers of of uh, weapons, military training, and enormous diplomatic support also. Uh, Museveni is always seen as the sort of the good guy in the region, only except that's not the case. So before we get to that, if you could just sort of sketch out to the extent that he acts as a kind of proxy military force for the United States in the region, just just sort of let's go country by country and talk about his role, not just in Uganda and Sudan you just talked about, but also Somalia and particularly Rwanda, if you could just describe his regional activities. Yeah. So shortly after he came, when he came to power, I mentioned before that he's closely related uh, to the Tutsis of Western, uh, of of Rwanda. Um, Large numbers of Tutsis were refugees at that time in Uganda because they had uh, been chased out uh, because of pogroms around the time of independence by the majority Hutu population who had felt for long, long time, centuries, that the Tutsis had lorded over them uh, and had oppressed them. So suddenly they got, the Hutus got democratic rights and they went a bit overboard and committed uh, many crimes against the Tutsis who then fled to Uganda, where a new generation grew up of um, sharp, um, often rather well-educated young men who then joined uh, Museveni's rebel group that overthrew the government of Uganda. And so when Museveni came to power, 25% of his, uh, of his men were Rwandan Tutsis, actually. And many of them were appointed to high positions in his army. And they um, immediately began plotting uh, to then use Uganda's help in taking over their own country. And in 1990, with weapons from Uganda, um, several thousand of them crossed the border into Rwanda and eventually set up camps in the northern mountains from which they then staged regular attacks and the Rwandan government uh, then fought back and there was a sort of ongoing civil war for about three and a half years which culminated in the genocide in 1994. so, uh, and throughout that period, Museveni was allowing weapons and uh, personnel to cross back and forth um, across the border between Uganda and the RPF. So they were being continually supplied, which is a violation of the 
um, UN Charter. It's a violation of Organization of African Unity Rules. It's a violation of Museveni's own promises because he said he wouldn't do that, uh, but he did it. What's his role there now? His role in Rwanda? Not much, I think. Uh, the Notice Rwanda has a very popular president who just got 99% of the vote. <laughs> he does. He does. Um, the man who took over, uh, Paul Kagame, uh, was a kind of seen at, at one time as Museveni's protege. And the two of them, um, and, and Rwanda's dictatorship is much more sort of overt than Uganda's. Is. Uganda's more of a sort of hidden dictatorship. But, um, but yes, um, uh, Kagame has just um, managed to uh, re-elect himself um, for yet another uh, third term in office and is likely to rule for the foreseeable future um, over a very um, cowed and terrified population for the most part. That's the feeling I get when I'm there. Um, relations between Museveni and Kagame are have been sort of on and off and hot and cold and rather mysterious. They once almost went to war uh, against each other in the early 2000s. Then they became friends again. Not clear what's happening now. And where else has Museveni been regionally active? Very early on, he um, uh, also became involved in the rebellion that gave rise to the toppling of Mobutu Sese Seko, who was then leader of Congo. Mm -hmm. So he was involved in essentially creating the conditions that led to the horrific civil war, or it wasn't really a civil war, it was actually, um, it involved uh, many, about nine countries in the region, but the terrible war that beset Congo in the... Um, uh, uh, between 1996, and that really continues to an extent today, there is still um, a, a very complex and dangerous situation there, and uh, hundreds to thousands, thousands of people are still being killed there. Um, but uh, yeah, so Uganda was involved in that. Uganda occupied thousands of miles of um, of Congolese territory extracted billions of dollars of natural resources during the 1990s uh, and, um, and created a, a, a sort of maelstrom that's going to be very hard to see uh, for, the, for the Congolese to see their way out of politically. So let's go back to uh, Museveni at home um, and how he's become... Um, a less and less attractive figure, at least to you, and could you explain that? Well, I think he's not, <laughs> certainly less and less attractive to me, that's true. Um, I guess um, I had long been aware of his undemocratic tendencies because I began to, um, later on, I became friends with people in the political opposition and began to realize what they were up against. But I became particularly aware of this when I got to know um, a young editor journalist who um, had been uh, running a newspaper in Uganda, which is, uh, at the time, one of the most popular in the country, that reported um, on a lot of these um, sort of foreign military adventures on uh, the war in 
uh, the, the, the sort of early moves in the, in the Rwandan Civil War, for example, and the war in Congo, uh, and also the troubles in northern Uganda, for which Museveni's army is also largely responsible. Uh, and so I, I got to know him and his story, and um, which I tell in the book. And this is Lawrence. This is Lawrence uh, Kiwanuka in Sereko, uh whose story is in the book. And he, um, when I first met him, he told me that he'd been tortured, that his. Um, newspaper had been shut down at times, that his, the offices of his political party had been torched, that he'd been rigged out of um, uh, an election, which he'd run for uh, to be part of a constituent assembly that was going to draft Uganda's new constitution and so on. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And then I, um, um, one hears many stories, and I didn't know quite whether to believe them or not, but then I found some old Amnesty International reports, which pretty much confirmed everything he was saying, and that uh, even as I had been enjoying myself in Uganda, working in the AIDS lab in the early 1990s and marveling at how the country had been restored to peace, that this was going on, the torture chambers and all the rest. And um, and was actually well known to the diplomatic community as well, which was ignoring it and covering it up. Has Museveni gotten worse I don't think so. That's what people say. There's this sort of idea that he had been a good leader in the beginning and that, uh, um, and that he suddenly became more and more dictatorial as time went on. Uh, I actually don't agree with that. And I think, um, I think the book makes a pretty good case that right from the beginning he was a bit terrifying. So he's now with Trump on his sixth U.S. president. Yes. Um, from different parties, mm. um, and they all have one thing in common, which is they stick with him. Yeah. Why? We don't know where Trump is on this. Trump is a wall when it comes to Africa, so we, ha- we don't know what his policy is, but he seems to be. Uh, um, but it does seem that um, whether we're talking about Reagan or George H.W. Bush or Bill Clinton or George W. Bush, or even, sadly, uh, Barack Obama, um, every president has continued to lavish enormous amounts of military um, and development aid on Museveni because, uh, at first, he was our man in Sudan, uh, supplying the SPLA, and then later on, he... um, uh, sent in peacekeepers who have been kind of instrumental in trying to keep the uh, Somalia situation um, under control. Of course, the Somalia situation isn't really under control, but the um, his was the only army that was willing to actually go in and fight al-Shabaab. What would happen to him if the U.S. did not support him so generously and steadfastly? Well, at the moment, it's hard to know because China is also um, involved in Africa heavily at the moment and might well take over supporting him. And so that's a concern. Early on, uh, had, he, had we not supported him early on back in the early, late, late 80s and early 90s, that was a key time when actually George H.W. Bush, George W.'s father, um, made a very strong commitment to democracy at that time. He said, now the Cold War is over, the day of the dictator is ending, it's time to support democracy around the world. And, and he actually 
uh, walked the talk, in fact. He did, um, he, um, did support democratic transitions and really sort of force old tyrants um, to democratize their countries in, in a number of places, in, in Ghana, for example, and in Zambia, and in Malawi, all of those countries turned. And since then, um, South Africa, obviously, um, and since then, those countries have had their problems. They're all beset with corruption, and they've got uh, political problems as well and so on. But the problems are nothing like as bad as Uganda. I mean, Uganda is surrounded by these bloodbaths, Congo, Rwanda, Sudan, South Sudan, the Joseph Kony problem, which is also of Museveni's making, and Somalia, and so on. Uh, I mean, uh, Uganda's really been exporting terror since um, the late 1980s, early 90s, whereas these other countries, they're sort of making progress towards becoming real countries uh, with a national identity, with a sense of political order and so on. Of course, there are still problems, but nothing like the problems that you see in this kind of Horn and Great Lakes region where um, you you're just see um, millions of bodies, really, and huge numbers of refugees, by the way, which is a big concern for us. What would What would happen if and your book makes it clear this is not likely to happen, the U.S., for whatever reason, said we're not supporting this guy anymore. What would happen to him and what would happen to the country? Right now? Yes. It depends on what form that lack of support takes, I think. Um, I think, um, unfortunately, when America tends to do things, it tends to do them unilaterally, and that tends to be a problem um, what I think, what I would prefer to see happen, uh, and it's very hard to, uh, this is sort of um, um, a, a kind of, you know, sort of touching faith in international diplomacy, I guess, but is if um, the U.S. and Western Europe and also the Asian countries that are involved there, Japan and China and so on, uh, would all come together and pressure the 70 to step down somehow. Uh, it does work. It, uh, it did work in South Africa. It, it, um, it's worked in, in, in many, many countries. And to really sort of build a consensus around allowing the Ugandan people, um, whose democratic wishes have um, been subverted in election after election after election, if they could only be allowed to determine their own leadership and their own future, which is guaranteed to them in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, by the way, the right to um, to be uh, to choose your own representative, and that um, uh, that would be wonderful. But I, um, the world is very distracted at the moment. And so if this happened, you don't think the same cycle would repeat? No, I don't. Um, I don't because there are a number of um, uh, leaders who are um, not only express a commitment to democracy but have acted upon it. They have not taken up guns. They... uh, Leaders in, in Uganda? 
yes, inside Uganda who um, are in the opposition right now, uh, who have very strong followings and have uh, many, uh, you know, they have, they have parties that function. They're, they have their problems and so on, as every political party does, but they are organized. They have representatives all over the country. There are politicians who are loved and, you know, practically worshipped by the people, but, um, you know, they don't have, um, you know, unless they're willing to go to war and, and, and fight this guy, which would be very difficult anyway, and that's not the kind of transition they want in the first place, uh, they can get nowhere. But they're real heroes, real unsung heroes of this story. What's the lesson in this story um, in terms of, uh, you know, the U.S., other countries, how they operate in Africa? I think that this is really, for me, this is the great, um, uh, you know, the last great frontier of civil and political rights. You know, it took us a long time um, as a world to kind of come to grips with the fact that slavery was wrong and we needed to end it. Mm -hmm. It took longer for the United States, for example, to figure out that everybody deserves equal rights regardless of um, the color of their skin uh, or their gender, although that battle, um, those battles are, are still continuing and uh, but we've come an awfully long way from the days of Jim Crow, even so. Um, but we really still don't recognize that African people deserve rights too, and that they um, are human beings with just the same um, who deserve the same respect as we do. And there's still a tendency uh, to see, especially on the part of our leaders, that it's a country to be exploited. And really what's at the bottom of all of this is the fact that there's about $24 trillion worth of unexploited mineral wealth under the ground in um, the eastern Congo. And Museveni has been quite instrumental uh, in ensuring that um, those areas are in the hands of allies of the West. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and from that point of view, from the, the Pentagon and the National Security Council say, well, then he's our man, regardless of what he does to his own people or those in their neighboring countries. How old is he? We don't know, actually. There are all sorts of rumors about that. Um, he claims that he is about 72, I think, but... In those days, it is true that birth certificates were not routinely issued um, to um, nomadic cattle herders, so it's we don't really know. If left on his own, does he have a, a successor that he has in mind? There are all sorts of rumors that he's grooming his son, uh, who, has, uh, who is at the moment, I guess, a brigadier mm -hmm. or a general, I think, and he's been sort of rapidly promoted through the ranks of the army, despite the fact that he's never seen combat. Um, or um, as far as um, my military friends in the army tell me, done anything particularly heroic. And so he's, um, he does seem to be the one who's being groomed for, to take over, and that's ex a, an enormous worry. What would it take, in, do you think, to create the kind of moral awakening in the U.S. about this problem? I hope your book is a major contribution, by the way, and I think it is. But um, why, why, 
what would make us change our minds? I don't know. I mean, one of the things that's kind of a sort of silver lining, if one can say that, about the Trump presidency is it has awakened all kinds of conversations about human rights and justice uh, all over the United States and all over the world, in fact, and that it may be time to examine this question uh, or the time may come to examine it. And, and once we begin to discuss it and it, when people really see what our taxes have been doing to that region of the world and to those people um, who have done no harm to us, I think, um, I, th I think one can only hope that there will be an, such an awakening. What is Lawrence doing now? Uh, he is working upstate. He's a teacher. In upstate New York. Upstate New York, yeah. He's a teacher at Dutchess, uh, Dutchess County Community College. And uh, he also works for the state of New York uh, with uh, in an institution for developmentally disabled people. And he works also... Uh, very hard on as the um, external liaison for Uganda's Democratic Party. So he's very involved in trying to raise awareness, both in the, among the Uganda diaspora and anyone else who cares to listen about the problems in the country. Does he want to move back? Of course he wants to go home. He has a wife and child there who he's longing to see. But if he went back now, it wouldn't turn out well? No, no, definitely not. Definitely not. Um, okay, well, thank you for t this conversation, and thank you very much for the book. Um, this is a, a, a book, it's an angry book with a kind of earned anger, and I, I think this is a step, an important step, in, in creating the kind of um, awareness that, that y you rightly said is missing. Um, it's it's impossible to read the book and not say, oh, so what? It's fine. Um, so I hope it, it, it begins what might be a protracted process of changing minds about about Museveni. I hope so too, and uh, and about um, uh, about the continent generally. But uh, anyway, thank you so much for this conversation. Helen Epstein's new book, Another Fine Mess, America, Uganda, and the War on Terror, is available now wherever you buy books. Thank you for speaking with us.